Let's keep praying. Father, it's been such a rich time already uh, and we ask that that might continue as we come to this word which the Lord Jesus said is what feeds us and keeps us alive and grows us. Uh, Men, women don't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from your mouth and so we ask that you might give us um, ears and minds and hearts to come to these words as they really are your words and to um, cherish them, to think hard on them and to live lives in obedience to them that do bring you honour and that we might know the joy that you intend for us as your people. And so we need this help and so ask for your spirit to be at work powerfully, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my youngest daughter is now nine years old, but if you hit rewind to when she was three years old and if I were to put a bunch of cash in front of her, if I were to put the five and the ten and the twenty the $50 and $100 note in front of her and say, hey, sweetheart, you can pick just one of these notes. Which one do you think she would have picked? The pretty pink one. <laughs> of course, right? Now, fast forward, nine, if I did the same, which one is she choosing? All of them, probably. <laughs> the green one. Not because her preference in colour has changed. She doesn't like green better than pink, but she has learnt to value She's learnt the value of things that are value. You can buy a whole lot more chocolate with the green one than the pink one. Growing in maturity is about growing in what we value, about valuing the things that are truly valuable. Christian maturity is exactly the same. Following Jesus involves a radical change of values as we come to him, like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value... He went away, sold everything he had and bought it. Coming to Jesus is to appreciate just how valuable he is and to live as a follower of Jesus is to continue to value the things that he does more and more. And this morning's passage asks us to think about what we value in a church, particularly what makes for a powerful church ministry. What makes for a powerful church ministry? How do you work out which church to be a part of? A a number of you are sticking your head in, you're new or newish and trying to decide, will I make this my church home? What are the values that you will bring to make that decision? For those of us who do call this place home, why? What is it about church that we value? Most of all, what is it that God would have us value about a powerful church ministry? That's going to be thrown up for us in this part of the Bible, which I want to confess is not an easy part of the Bible to read. Have you found that as as you've got into it on your own or in groups? Uh, It's a tricky thing to read because it's like listening to one side of a conversation and you're only hearing kind of the person in the room talk and you're trying to work out what the other person on the other side of the phone, say, is saying to, to work it out. That's what's going on as we read through this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, which is in response to letters that they've written to him and he's written back and they've written to him, there's been, but we only have one side of the conversation. So it is a, a tricky part to read and then can be a tricky part of the Bible to go, so what do I do with that? Um, but there is enough detail here for us to make sense of the historical situation. This is not once upon a time in a spiritual land far, far away. This is dealing with a period of about 50 to 52 AD, 
where Paul has come in at that time and planted the church in Corinth. And having established the church, he's moved on to be a missionary elsewhere and plant other churches. As he leaves, some other missionaries come in behind him. Seems quite likely from Jerusalem. But instead of continuing on the ministry in the vein of Paul, they actually come in to critique him. And they come in to contrast themselves with him. And they've captured, if not the whole of the Corinthian church, a significant part of it. Now, these new missionaries, Paul actually calls in chapter 11, verse 3, super apostles. So an apostle is someone who is commissioned by Jesus to take the news of Jesus out. This is the apostle 2.0. This is the next best new edition of apostles that's come in. But Paul sees through them in chapter 11, verse 13, he calls them messengers of Satan. We'll come to that next week. Not because he's insecure, This is not because of a petty jealousy as though, oh man, they like their new pastors better than they liked me, the old pastor. Um, This is a godly jealousy that he has for them as their spiritual father. Uh, In one sense, he's given birth to the church. And for the church to move away from the Apostle Paul is actually for them to move away from Christ. So identified is Paul with Christ. And so he's deeply concerned to call them back to himself which is to call them back to Jesus, to call them back to what is truly valuable. So that's something of the context that we need to bear in mind as we work through the chapters over the next few weeks. You see the critique against Paul here in verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2. I beg that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So there's the critique that they've thrown at Paul. You live according to the world. You you live, you might have another translation there, according to the flesh. Now, when we read this, if we've been Bible readers for some time, we might think that they're saying, Paul, you're really ungodly living according to the world. You know, engaging in drunkenness, sexual immorality, greed, envy and so on, which he does list as sins of the flesh. That's not what they mean, as they call him fleshly. They mean he's weak, and ordinary. He's of the stuff of earth, not the high glorious stuff of heaven. Paul doesn't seem spiritual enough, according to the values that they're bringing. Not in touch with the power of heaven, not the kind of man that you would expect him to be if he really was in touch with the exalted Christ, the Lord of the universe. He seems so ordinary, weak, fleshly, earthly. That's what they mean. Verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. So they're accusing him of being bold in his letters, maybe that's impressive to them, but a real letdown when he walks into the room. Verse 10, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Talk about how to critique a preacher. (laughs) See, in the Greek culture of the first century, public speaking was the YouTube or TikTok equivalent. It's how you gained a following. It's how you showed how impressive you were. You would get up and for a start, you did need to be pleasing to the eye. You needed to look good, impressive physically. And then as you spoke, your words needed to be like honey. 
You know, you would just wax eloquent and you would have such a charisma about you that even if people wanted to turn away, they couldn't. That's what was elevated and, and gloried in in the first century. But Paul, he was a dag. He, he just didn't have the impressive qualities according to the culture's values. He wasn't a great public speaker. He wasn't the guy that you said to your friend, man, come and listen to this guy, he's amazing. He didn't have a commanding presence. He, he didn't have that charisma. He bumbled and stumbled. In fact, his preaching was deathly. You can chase this up in Acts chapter 20. Do you remember he's preaching through the night and there's this young man sitting by the window who falls asleep, <laughs> falls out the window, dies. Um, Paul had the gift of healing, so the story ended well. But that's the kind of preacher that Paul was. It would kill some people. Um, and so the, the Corinthians, they've now tasted the amazing, smooth, impressive ministry of the super apostles who fit the bill according to the cultural values of what was powerful, what was glorious. And so they're dumping on Paul. How does he respond? Well, that's what the next bunch of chapters are going to be. So we'll cover them in the coming weeks. But for today, let me give you three marks that Paul gives to spot true power in a church ministry, truly divine power in a ministry. Number one, it's the biggest one. We'll spend most time on it. It's the word of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For though we live in the world, so he owns it, though I am fleshly, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, a stronghold was that part of a city that was most protected. So you had a city with city walls, and then you go in, it might be down underground, it might have bars around it. That's the stronghold. So if you were holding someone captive, the hardest part to get out of or get to so he's using an image here, but what does the stronghold represent? And what's the weapons that he has to demolish the hardest to get to parts? Well, the answer is in the very next verse. Verse 5. We, this is Paul, demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The stronghold is the realm of thinking. Arguments, pretensions, thoughts. And the weapons that have divine power to take down these strongholds are words. Words put together in sentences, put together in arguments. We're supposed to here dig a little, not just brush over it, to actually realise there is a most horrific captivity that we're not often aware of. What is the most terrifying captivity, stronghold that we might be in? Um, I was reminded of the movie Taken. Do you remember that? It's quite an old movie now where uh, a man's teenage daughter heads off around Europe to travel around Europe and is kidnapped by some bad dudes and it's a horrific um, picture of, of kidnapping and captivity unable to get out of until 
um, you know, tough man dad, Liam Neeson. You know, we just spend the rest of the movie cheering him on, go get him, go, go get her, and he does. He rescues her. I was reminded of that because one of you came to me and said, my daughter's travelling around Europe right now. I remember that movie Taken? <laughs> uh, problem is, I'm not Liam Neeson. I'm not a tough guy. What am I, I going to do? He's terrified. And fair enough. Uh, that's a horrible thought, isn't it, to be taken kidnapped? Uh, no, no way of getting yourself out of it. But there is a far more ordinary, common and terrifying captivity to fear. And it's wrong thinking about God. That doesn't sound that terrifying, does it? But it's wrong thinking about God. Jesus made it clear that what is at the heart of Satan's work what is his primary, primary tool? Lies. Deception. He's the father of all lies. Wrong thinking about God especially, which sinful people love to embrace and are held captive by them. Wrong thinking particularly about God. So yes, in all its forms, it's the atheist who mocks the idea of the very existence of God. Held captive to that wrong thinking. Yes, it is the idolater, the person who sets up ten idols in the lounge room and gets down and prays to them each night. But it's far more ordinary in our context. It's the average central coastie who thinks that the goal of life is just to make the most of every gift and ignore the giver. To squeeze every bit of life and ignore the, the God of life. To think, oh yeah, there's God there and, and, and as long as I live a good enough life, don't kill anyone, I'll be okay, I'll be led into heaven, held captive to the lies about God. It's the nice nana who says to their grandchild, sweetheart, as long as you're happy, that's the main thing in life. It sounds so lovely. But it's to be held captive to wrong thinking about God. It's the cultural values that say materialism, it'll satisfy us. A family, that'll complete you. A career, that'll define you. A, a passport full of stamps, that'll make you. And we eat it up and we live in captivity about wrong thinking about God. The most demonic work to be frightened of is not demon possession, but wrong thinking about God in all of its forms. We're held in bondage to that thinking, to that deception. So what can liberate people from the stronghold of wrong thinking? What can actually rescue us? Only one thing, and it is the word of the gospel, which is at the very heart, it is the very drumbeat of everything that Paul was about and did his whole ministry. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He makes this so clear from the get-go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. You want to know what Paul's ministry is about? Here it is, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the thing that looks so weak and so unimpressive and so unbelievable, the cross. The, the eternal God 
would become one of us, would enter into our world and would actually die in our place to take our judgment so that we might be spared. That, that looked ridiculous, stupid. But for those who are being saved, the power of God. The power of Paul's ministry is not in him, the messenger. It's not in his charisma. It's in his message. The message of a crucified Christ. This is critical in identifying what makes for a powerful ministry. And tragically, so many people in so many churches have been shipwrecked by missing this point about being drawn into the wrong place, which is not at all true divine power. This is critical. Chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, he goes on, he explains his ministry. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I wasn't the popular guy. I wasn't the impressive guy according to the values of the world. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. Yes, he owns it. In fleshliness, in, in ordinariness. I came with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Do you see what Paul has done from the very get-go? There is nothing impressive about me, Paul. Let me tell you about God, the Saviour in Jesus. He owns his weakness, how ordinary he is, that it might be clear where the power of his ministry lies, not in him. This is where churches, where ministries get completely hammered when they're attracted to typically a man. A man who looks so impressive, so much charisma. Paul says, that is not a powerful ministry. Powerful ministry is someone who would point you to the power of the cross, the power of a saviour. And so let me continue to apply this for us for a moment. What is the foundation and fixation of a powerful church ministry. I say foundation and fixation because pretty much every church will say, oh yeah, yeah, we're founded on the word of the gospel, on the word of God. But they fixate elsewhere. You kind of start with the gospel, but then you, you move on to greater and grander experiences and things. It's been said well that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z. Not just the ABC's training wheels that you kind of put on so now you can go do great things, but the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle is the word of the gospel. What is that? Well, in its shortest form, Jesus is Lord, not you, not me. In its slightly longer form, the kind of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then in its fullest form, you can chase it up later, but Luke 24 where Jesus says that Every word in every page of the scriptures points to him. It's the word of the gospel. Which means if that's where divine power is, 
If it's only that that demolishes the stronghold of Satan, it means we must value something that is really countercultural, and it's this thinking, putting our minds to work, to engage with words and sentences and paragraphs and contexts and arguments and, and think about how that challenges the values that we bring to things. What, what, what are the thoughts that are to be taken captive and made obedient to Jesus because they're not naturally? It means to actually be in touch with the power of God through his word, we've got to think, not just experience. And so we do that in so many different forms, but don't miss the divine power of this activity right now that we do every week. It seems so ordinary. Here we go again, another sermon. But as we think into the word of the gospel, there is the divine power of God to rescue us from strongholds. And so as you look for a church that is divinely powerful, look for a church that will give you a sore neck. This, this is how someone put it to me recently who had come from another church that didn't fixate on the Word of God. In fact, they said, wow, it's so striking. You, you guys just, you, you're in the Word of God and you're giving me a sore note because you keep saying, look at verse 7. And so I look at verse 7, then you say something else and I look at then you say, look at verse 12. And I look at and then you say, yeah. Um, what are other churches doing? What do they have to say other than point you to the divine power of the Word of God? Value a church that will give you a sore neck, that will say, don't look at anyone up here. Look at what is truly and divinely powerful. Paul elevates the value of the word of God as the supreme weapon in liberating sinners and in changing us to be obedient to Christ. The other thing that ought to encourage us as we apply this to ourselves is this is a great encouragement as you look at Paul and what is truly powerful for those of us who recognise our weakness. Do you, do you feel weak? Do you feel ordinary? Do you look at people and go, man, there are so many more people who are smarter, who are funnier, who are better looking, who are just more impressive. Surely God would use them to do a powerful work. Look at Paul who wrote pretty much the bulk of the New Testament. He's just the daggiest, most ordinary guy out with a powerful message. And so as you give yourself to bring the word of the gospel to bear in people's lives, you can be confident that that is where the power of God is at work. As you pluck up the courage to talk to that friend, that family member about Jesus, you bumble your way through trying to share the gospel and answer questions. There's the power of God. As you read the Bible with your kids regularly at home or with your EV kids at church and, and you go, what's this doing? Where's this going? There's the divine power of God bringing the word of gospel to bear. As we, as we've been reflecting on, sing the word of the gospel. There is great divine power in that activity as we declare the truths of the gospel to each other, as we praise God in that, so that they might engage our minds and get stuck there. That they might actually stir our hearts and move us. I mean, what a gift song is from God. I, I kind of complained to Trev 
semi-regularly that Trev could write one song in three years and we'll be singing it on our deathbeds. I could preach 50 sermons a year and you'd never remember them. (laughs) There is something profound, isn't there, about the gift of song, of the word of the gospel put to music that does stick and so sing. Declare the power of God in the word of the gospel. There's the first and major mark of a divinely powerful ministry. That's what it values above all things. Here's the next two and they go much quicker. The second mark is that lives are changed. The divinely powerful word of the gospel, though proclaimed by those who are weak, produces gospel fruit. It actually changes lives. You see that there in verse 7, chapter 10, verse 7. It's a a tricky thing to understand what's going on on the surface. Verse 7 says, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So, even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Now, let's apply our minds. Let's let's think here. Um, One of the helpful things about our translations is they'll often put a footnote when there's a question about the translation. It was originally written in Greek, so helpfully translated into English. But as you know, with translation, it can sometimes go a number of different ways. With the NIV, you'll see a footnote that says, verse 7, instead of you are judging by appearances, it says, look at the obvious facts. The same Greek could be translated both ways. And I think that's actually the meaning that Paul has here. Um, The Corinthians think that they've finally discovered true spiritual power in the flashy ministry of the super apostles, power that that, that taps into the exalted power of Christ, unlike Paul. In fact, you see this critique in chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3, he points out, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, and he goes on. So, so the Corinthians go, Paul, Christ is not speaking through you. They're demanding proof that he is. And what is something of the proof that he gives? Well, back to chapter 10, verse 7. Look at the obvious facts. It's basically saying, look in the mirror. It's like uh, a mum who has daughters who are a spitting image of her. Um, gorgeous daughters reflecting their mum. And the, and the daughter says to their mum, you're not my mum. The mum just needs to say, have a look in the mirror. I'm your mum. Or, or even more extreme, which is what's going on here, the daughter says to the mum, you're not a mother. The mother just needs to go, look in the mirror. The fact that you're a child demonstrates I'm a mother. That's what's going on here. It's as if Paul is saying, you think my ministry lacks power? Look in the mirror. The fact that you belong to Christ as Christians is evidence that my ministry has power because I brought the gospel to you. You were dead in your sin. You were destined for hell. You now know the Lord Jesus. How did that happen? Look in the mirror. The fact of your existence demonstrates the power of my ministry. Not in me, but in my message. And so the point here for us is this. The mark of a powerful ministry is that it will see people repent and believe. It will see lives changed. 
People come to Christ. We baptise and we rejoice. And people grow in obedience to Christ, having every thought bit by bit taken captive, more and more aligned with what he values. We're not going to float around on super spiritual clouds. We will remain people like Paul who are ordinary and weak, who struggle with all sorts of things, who suffer in all kinds of ways. We remain unimpressive people. But a mark of a truly powerful ministry in church is that it will be made up of people who each day wake up and continue to trust Jesus. Continue to look to him as a great saviour. Continue to long to have every thought captured for him. We know we are not the people that we are called to be, that we want to be, but we can say we're not the people that we used to be or that we would otherwise be, but for the power of the gospel. The mark of a powerful ministry is that lives are changed. And as you look at the facts of those change, you can see the power of the gospel. There's the second mark. Here's the third and final mark that he gives. It's there in verses 12 to 18. And uh, it's quite a, quite a knotty, complicated section. And it introduces a theme that we'll actually be looking at for the next bunch of chapters. So I'll, I'll only touch on it for now. Um, but what he's doing there in verses 12 to 18... He's contrasting himself with these super apostles. And these super apostles, verse 12, are commending themselves. They're boasting in themselves, in their gifting, in their abilities, their charisma and public speaking and popularity and so on. Paul, however, verse 13, will not boast beyond proper limits but will confine his boasting to the sphere of service God himself has given him, a sphere that also includes you. Now, boasting will come up quite a bit, and in one sense, Paul doesn't want to boast, but that's the mark of these super apostles and the unhealthy false gospel. And so he says, all right, if, if you want to talk about boasting, let's talk about true boasting. You do not boast in yourself. You do not look to a pastor who is going, how good am I? He says, if I'm going to boast, I'll only boast to the sphere that God says that's good boasting, and it includes you, Corinthians, uh, converts, the fruit of the gospel. But most importantly, verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The gospel is truly liberating in so many ways. It says, stop comparing yourself with everyone. Stop measuring your value and worth with those around you. Stop caring so much and care what the Lord thinks of you. And if you're going to boast, don't boast in yourself, don't boast in anything that you... Boast in the Lord, who he is, what he has done and what he thinks of you. There is a mark of a truly powerful ministry. It boasts in the right sphere, in the right things, not the wrong things. So let me just have a quick word about boasting for us as we finish. We are a church now who is a 27-year-old church plant. Um, So we're starting to get on. 
And uh, I look out and I see some faces who I know you were there from the very get-go, from the very start. I look out and see faces who joined five years in. And you, I mean, Kimberly's here with us. And um, no doubt you are able to kind of take stock, look at church and go, wow, a lot has changed. Has that been your experience, Kimberly, coming back? Um, Wow, a lot has changed. Um, We need to take a lot of care here, though. We started in living rooms in sheds, and then in school halls. Now, this morning, we are meeting in the biggest church building on the Central Coast, um, quite possibly in Australia, uh, in in our circles anyway, Um, and so let's do what Australians do, in the Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) And we are among the biggest evangelical church in our neck of the world. This is very dangerous for us because we can be tempted to boast in the wrong things. We can be tempted to go, look at all of this. Uh, Look at the building, look at the size, look at the... the... There are churches all around our country this morning, in fact, in our denomination, the FIEC, I'm guessing 95% of them are meeting in freezing cold school halls, dragging those yellow chairs around. Do you remember that? Some of you do. One of the tricky things for us, as the Lord has brought growth and here we are, is um, we haven't seen that journey. Uh, We haven't seen what it was like. And we can be tempted to think, think that this is what's impressive. But as every church that gathers around the word of the gospel this morning, It is the most glorious gathering that is happening on planet Earth. As God says, look at them. Look at what I've done through my son in them. We boast in the Lord. We give him great thanks for changed lives, for more and more people. We give him great thanks for the facilities. I mean, what a place for us to declare the word of the gospel. We, we deal with the issues we're facing of growth. We're going to need to knock up more buildings to house the kids, which is starting to overflow. We rejoice in that, but we don't boast in the wrong things. We need to be very careful that we're not impressed by the things that the Corinthians were impressed, that Paul would actually rebuke us on, that the Lord Jesus would rebuke us on. We give him great thanks We long to see the building filled because that means more and more people won from hell to heaven, more and more lives that are changed. But let's be very careful. Every gathering of of five little old ladies this morning is just as glorious as they gather around the divine word of the gospel. We praise him. We give him thanks. Watch out for pride. Watch that our values might drift and shift. It's the word of the gospel that we keep proclaiming. The word of the gospel that produces changed lives. That's what we boast in. The Lord, who he is, what he's done and what he says of us. So if you are new checking us out, here we are. That's what we're on about. If this is your church, might we hold dearly to this value. That we be a place that holds out the word of the gospel into the coming generations. Pray, God, that we, we don't get 
caught up and, and captured by the strongholds of wrong thinking, of putting our hope in a man, in a woman, except for the man, Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord and Saviour. Let me pray for us. Well, Father God, we do thank you for uh, our story here, uh, that it is a story that we can boast in rightly as we boast in the Lord and his kindness to uh, save people over the years and grow people and um, send people out to Thailand and elsewhere. Uh, So we rejoice and boast in that and we ask please for forgiveness where pride creeps in, where complacency creeps in, where we boast in the wrong things, we take confidence in the wrong things and we are refreshed to hear that it is your word, the word of the gospel of your son that is truly powerful, the word that has given rise to this church and every true church and so might be the case that we cling dearly to that, to value that and uh, we do pray please for the churches around the central coast who gather around your word that you would guard them and grow them for the churches around your country uh, that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit and uh, we do want to humbly say thank you for um, the peace and the part that we can play in that but ask Lord that you might protect us and uh, that we would boast only in Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen.